0: Especially after a beautiful high Sabbath like today, and then to have to come to a book like Ecclesiastes—it's uh, it's not easy to step up here, knowing <laughs> that uh, I'm about to be a downer. But uh, <clears throat> I, let's let's preface it by saying this: Over the past year, I have been uh, kind of had people reveal to me that I have a tendency to be a pessimist. I know you're shocked. Okay. Because it's funny, I never really considered myself one. And I guess that most pessimists don't, if you think about it. Most pessimists don't even realize that they are pessimists until kind, considerate people point it out to them. Or at least they don't want to admit they are, I guess. But before you conclude what you think a pessimist is, all you optimists out there especially, remember this, okay, that a pessimist says... Uh, It just can't get any worse. And an optimist says, oh, yes, it can. (laughs) One good thing about being a pessimist is that you don't find that many pessimists are worriers. We don't worry. Worry is another gift. How many have the spiritual gift of worry? How many really think that worry is a spiritual gift? Because a pessimist knows what it really is and doesn't worry about it. They know it's coming. So they don't worry about it. It's the optimists who worry. You optimists have to worry because you have this high and mighty thing of what may be coming and it may not. The pessimists know that. We don't worry. Joseph Telushkin's book, The Complete Book of Jewish Humor, he tells the classic Jewish joke of the Jewish mom that every week sent her children a telegram with these words. Dear kids... Start worrying more later. <laughs> I'm not so sure about being a pessimist. I don't know if I am. I'd like to think that I am optimistically pessimistic. I'm like the engineer who sees the glass as neither half empty nor half full. He just sees a glass that's twice as big as it needs to be. When you're going through a book like Ecclesiastes, you have to understand when we've tried to point this out, that if you feel that once we begin to open this book and, and to read the words that the Koheleth, the preacher, the teacher has for us, that he is a pessimist and that he's a worrier and that he's down and he's, he's just a deputy downer doomsday guy, you have to understand again where he's coming from and who he is. And that's what Pastor Walt and I have tried to do. Because Ecclesiastes is not an easy book. It isn't easy. It isn't easy to face the true, harsh reality of what life is under the sun. And that's all he's doing. Pastor Walt last week shared with us the most famous words, thanks to a, a couple of musical groups and a few poets, the most famous words in all Ecclesiastes. There's a time for what? There's a time for everything. There's a time for everything. And that that the other conclusion, well, the one conclusion that he came to that I want to reiterate, because it makes it, it makes, uh, it makes uh, things a little easier to be able to handle the pessimism, if you will, of what we're about to read today. And that is that the work that we've been given, the toil that we've been given to do under the sun is truly a gift from God. If nothing else, it gives us something to do rather than just sit around and be pessimistic. I saw in a movie once that uh, somebody, if, if you're in a crisis, somebody said, if you can't give the people, if, above all else, always give people hope. And if you can't give them hope, just give them something to do. And our toil under the sun is truly a gift from God. He gives us something to do. Now, what we should do with that toil should be different than those of us who want to live not just under the sun, but to live over the sun too. The other was that the preacher, the other basic thing that Pastor Walt said, and it just, it just struck me, it just hit me, and that is is that the preacher may be pessimistic and he may be saying things uh, to us that bring us down a bit. Okay? But really all he's doing is stating the truth. It's up to us whether or not we want to believe it's morose. Living under the sun is no winning proposition. It isn't a winning proposition. There's nothing good about it, the preacher says. And we have to know that. We know that that's true. We have to know that it's true. But it's up to us on whether or not we want to be morose about it. And I don't think that Solomon is necessarily morose. He is just telling us what is and what is to come. And he's also warning those who may have still a little bit of life to live that it doesn't have to be the way that he had it turn out. It can be different. So he's giving advice to those who have life to live. He's giving advice to those of us who are coming up on that. And he's giving advice to to those who may be looking at their mortality saying, you know what, you don't have to be morose. You don't have to be down about this. But living under the sun is just a hard proposition. There's nothing good. It's all what? It's all vanity, a chasing after the wind. He says at least twelve times. Futility, futility, utterly futile. There, I didn't see We're just oh, man. so. We are reminded as we move on in Ecclesiastes three. If you want to follow along, we'll be in Ecclesiastes three. We are reminded that after he tells us about the times that there is a time for everything. Hey, by the way, isn't it a good idea? Isn't it, Wasn't it great of God that even though under the sun is utter futility, that He did give us a time for everything? George Knight, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Doctor George Knight said, "What if, what if the time to plant this year was in October, but next year it might be in December?" You know, hey. He did give us a break. There is a time for everything. But before you go on, he wants to remind you of who is in in charge of those times, that we've got nothing to be able to do with these times. In verse 11, he says, He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he's put a sense of past and future into their minds, speaking of us, speaking of mankind, a sense of past and future. Pastor Walt used a translation that said he put eternity into the hearts of humanity. But it's a sense that, that, that we understand that we know. By the way, it's one of the things, and we'll talk about it in a minute, that separates us from the animals. Animals have no sense of time. Animals live, and they don't understand where they're headed. What he gave humanity was this sense that, there, that we came from somewhere, we're, we're on a road to somewhere, and we're headed somewhere. It's a sense of duration, if you will. Eternity's not bad, but it's more of a sense of duration. We have that. No other creature does. But he says he puts a sense of past and future in their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Again, he's stating something simple, something Pastor Wald has drilled into us. He is God and we are not. If we think that we could ever begin to understand completely, completely the Creator, then we're no longer creature. And there is only how many creators? One. I think God apologizes for that. I see him saying, I'm sorry, I really am, but I'm the only one. They cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. He's done this so that the creatures can look and say, wow, he's got it wired. He's got it. And what do we get to do? We get to stand in awe before him. We need to be reminded every day that we need to stand in awe before God. The creator is someone to stand in awe of. We may not feel like it every day. And it's especially hard living under the sun. But he gives us these reminders that he is who he says he is. And every now and then we get that reminder through our thick skulls and we just stand in awe. That which is already has been. That which is to be already is. And God seeks out what has gone by. So what he's saying is that God is in charge of these times. We are not. There's one thing we have no control over, and that is time. He's given us space. He's given us all that we can do with space. Do you ever realize that? He's given us space. But the one thing he cannot give us is time because he is God and we are not. He's in control, but he puts this eternity or a sense of past and future. He gives humanity a longing for meaning, even though we can never grasp the meaning. Now, some would say that that's a cruel thing to do. I would say no, because he's given us hope, even though that we can stand here and admit and say that we will never, ever grasp the meaning. He's given us eternity to do so. What would be the use or the sense of walking with him forever if there's nothing more to learn? So what he's saying is, you get to walk with me forever. I'm going to tell you everything you want to know. And I'll go beyond everything you want to know. You're never going to grasp it. But guess what? Tomorrow we will walk and talk again. Man, man. The enemy convinced us that God is holding back from us. The enemy convinced us. Okay, that God is like you and me. That he's petty, that he's jealous, that he's self-centered. The enemy stands and says, look, look, he's given you a sense of eternity, but he's, he's not going to let you know what it means. The enemy has convinced us that he's holding back from us. That's what he told Eve. On the day that you eat of it, he knows that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's holding back from you, Eve. He's petty. He's jealous. He's jealous. And we're convinced that God feels about things the same way that we do. And what we forget is that we live under the sun. Our self-centeredness, our nature, our sinful nature to, to, to be completely wrapped in and in around self. That's what has made the toil under the sun toil. That is what is what has made under the sun ruined our creation. You with me? Under the sun is hopeless. Our selfishness, our sinfulness, our nature, our default disposition makes under the sun utterly futile. Our nature can't be overcome. We talked about that in the first chapter. Wisdom does not trump nature. That's what Solomon was saying. Here's the wisest man in the world saying, I was given the gift of wisdom and I found out that wisdom does not trump nature. Nor does willpower. None of it trumps nature. And he's looking into the face of eternity saying, then woe is me. I'm undone. If there's nothing that can be done about my nature, then what can be done? God says, I got this. It's all placed on its head. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, wickedness was there as well. The places where we're supposed to find justice in the world, what do we find? We find wickedness. We find the opposite of justice. We find selfishness. We find self-preservation. We find no care for one another, especially, especially if we're accused of something. How many here would feel real confident right now if you were accused of the crime that the system is going to take care of you? Now, I'm not here to knock the courts, really. I'm not here to knock the courts. The courts do what they can do with what they've been given. And I believe that there are honest, true, selfless public servants out there who have your rights in mind, and that's why they went to work in the courts. But what I'm saying is that the system is 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 it's it's, it's what Solomon finds when he tries to go. I thought about this last night. What is one of the most fundamental things, fundamental principles of of our justice system, of what we claim our justice system to be, is that we are innocent until what? Until proven guilty. Now, it doesn't say those words. The Fifth Amendment doesn't say those words, but if you look at the Fifth, the Sixth, the Seventh, and the Fourteenth Amendments, you can come to that conclusion with those words. As a matter of fact, the United Nations Charter put those words in the charter because they felt that it was implied enough in our Constitution. The Fifth Amendment actually says... That you will not be deprived of liberty, you will not be deprived of possession of property, you will not be deprived of pursuit of life without due process. And due process includes a trial in which the prosecution carries the burden of proving that you are guilty. But let me ask you, in a day and age when everybody over the age of 10 years old is not only carrying around a video camera, they are carrying around a new studio in their pocket, Do we live in an age where the innocent are innocent until proven guilty? We do not, do we? And by the way, that's not the court's fault. And that's not the judge's fault. And that's not the lawyer's fault. We want it done away with. We want it done with. As a matter of fact, when somebody stands up for somebody's rights, then they're accused of being soft on the criminal. And we as a society then look at them and say, you can't stand up for murderers and rapists. They've got rights. And we talk about rights until we come up against people that we don't think should have those rights. And Solomon says, Under the sun, I look in the place of justices and I find wickedness. He says the same about righteousness. He says the same about righteousness. Places of righteousness, what does he find when he gets there? He finds wickedness as well. I'm not going to pick on the church. But the one place we should be able to find the church is righteousness. All I'm going to ask is how many here today lived out their week of Christ's righteousness perfectly this week? None of us did, did we? You know what? There's nothing wrong with that. We're a fallen people and we live under the sun and we do the best we can. The problem is, is that we try to tell people that we are. And when they come looking for that righteousness, they don't find it. And without being honest and transparent about them about really who we are and who saves us and why, we give them this false idea of what religion should be. And it's no wonder when they come to the place of righteousness they find wickedness. I heard a preacher. A while back, you know, I just sometimes I wish that that not not our church or any particular church. I just wish the church as a whole would take God's word to heart when he says, be still and know that I am God. What he's really saying is, why don't you just shut up? Yeah. I know that I'm unrighteous. I know that I'm fallen. I know that I'm selfish. And I know that I need my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what I'm tempted to do is try to tell people that I'm exactly the opposite of that. And when I do, I drive people away. Because it's not honest. It's not transparent. It's not confessing my sins and having them forgiven. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, I heard a preacher a while back. He was using the Titanic in, in, in illustration for a sermon. And he said these words. He said, he uttered the words of the engineer, and you know, you know the chief engineer and designer of the Titanic, his famous words now, what he said about the boat, that not even who could sink it. That not even God could sink it. Okay? Well, this preacher adds to that, instead of being still and knowing that he is God, he opens his mouth again, which is the problem, and he says, you know what, I think God knows a challenge when he hears it. God knows the challenge when he hears it. See, and a lot of us laughed. A lot of us laughed because we felt good that God would do what any of us would do when we were mocked. And that is what? Get revenge. Take it out. And, we, and a lot of us in the back of our heads said, yay, God, yay, God. But really, what are we saying? Go ahead, one man, one prideful engineer, who, by the way, was just proud of what he had done, okay? And and, and Solomon is going to say today, you know what? Be proud in your work. Be happy with your work. Be happy with your toil. By the way, that's all he did, okay? And yeah, he popped off a little bit that God couldn't sink the boat. But tell me, tell me, would God kill over 1,500 people to take this engineer down? By the way, the designer wasn't even on the boat. I don't know about any of you, but to me, the most horrible way to die would be either to drown or to freeze to death or both at the same time. And 1,500 people did that night. And God had nothing to do with bringing that down. Listen to what we say. Listen to what we live out. Listen to what our natures even place upon our creator because of the toil we have under the sun. So he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for he's appointed a time for every matter and for every work. Now, if you look at it the way that that preacher did, if you look at it, you say, yeah, come on, God, bring it on. Judge the wicked. Do it now. Just let me watch. But what he misses in that sentence is judge also who? The righteous. Under the sun, even the righteous get judged you think, if I'm right, I don't need to be judged, right? <laughs> Guess again. Under the sun, the righteous aren't really righteous. They just appear righteous. Under the sun, the wicked are the wicked. And that's who we are. We get to the point where we quit competing with each other. I'm more righteous than you. I may not say it out loud because that would be unrighteous to to do that. But even the righteous people under the sun have a problem. They're human. Some look good on the outside. They whitewash that tomb, but on the inside just take a sniff. What's inside? Their throats are open graves, Paul said. Their mouths are full of poison. And who is Paul talking about in Romans 2 when he says that? Is he talking just about pagans, just about Gentiles? No, he's talking about Jews too. He's talking about all of us. He's talking about the wicked and the righteous. Under the sun, we all have the same problem. We're under the sun. So I said in my heart with regard to human beings that God is testing them to show that they are but what? That they are but animals. I told you. Solomon's going to be down on us today. He's rather pessimistic, isn't he? He looks at the human race and he calls them what? He calls them animals. Now Solomon knows as well as anyone that we were created in the image of God. But when it comes to living under the sun, when it comes to the nature that we have chosen, what he's saying is, is that you have the same fate as animals. Why do you think that you're better than an animal if you're going to die the same way the animals do? And that's what he's saying. The fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and humans have no advantage over the animals for all is what? All is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all turn to dust again. Who knows whether the human spirit and, and please read that breath for who knows whether the human breath, the ruach, the animating force, the breath of God that breathes into every being. He's saying that that same breath lives the animals too, animates the animals. It is their breathing life, breathing force, giving force also. So he said, who knows if the the human breath goes upward and the spirit of animals go downward? We all have the same what? By the way, if you're getting nervous, Solomon's not even talking about the afterlife here. He's trying to make a point. Get the context of what he's trying to make. He's not trying to tell us. He's not trying to tell us that our spirits return to God. That's not what he's saying. Because in chapter 12, he'll wrap all that up, right? Body goes back to the dust. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Okay? So here he's not, he's not talking about the afterlife. He's not giving a doctrine of the state of the dead. Are you with me, my fellow Seventh-day Adventists? He's making a point, And the point is this, is that we all have one fate under the sun. And what is it? Is that we die. Animals die. Humans die. God gave us the breath. God created the body. The body returns to the dust from which it was made out of his own hands, and the breath returns to God. We all have the same fate. Now the preacher might be saying, he might be saying, the reason we suffer the same fate is because when it comes to push and shove, this nature that we have, living under the sun, we actually act more like animals than we do the children of God. And I had a big long example there, but... I feel picked on enough today, don't you, by Solomon? All I can say is this is that you put me in a situation that requires me to run to my default position, and yes, I more resemble a predator or an animal than I do the image of God that was placed in me. And I am lost. I am utterly, utterly lost. If there's any day, if there's any day that that somehow I can manage to to treat somebody with compassion, that I actually could get outside of my own selfishness and bring them the love of Christ, it is because Christ is living in me and not because of this nature that I am carrying around. And Pastor Walt spoke that one day, one day, y'all, he's going to take care of it. One day that nature is going to be done away with. All we have to do is to get through under the sun. So there's nothing better than all should enjoy their work, for that is their lot. Who can bring them to see what will be after them? He's asking. Again, not speaking about the afterlife. We know what's going to happen with the resurrection. We know that a resurrection is coming, but he isn't making a point about the resurrection. What he's saying is that once we die, is is anybody going to bring us back to life under the sun? That's what he's saying. Is there anybody around powerful enough to bring us back to life under the sun? When you and I get resurrected, is it going to be back to this place? No. In fact, if it is, I'm going to protest. It's not what you promised. You promised me that when I raise, that mirror will be clear, I will see him face to face. It will not be under this sun anymore, and I can begin to walk and to talk with God like I was created and like you were created to do. So what is he saying? Now that we're under the sun, now that we all are in the same place, suffer the same fate. You, me, animals, we're not even better than animals. Our nature is no better than an animal's nature. Our our, our fate is no better than an animal's fate. The preacher is saying, quit popping off about this life under the sun. It is futile. It's a chasing after the wind. It is vanity. But now that we're here, what does he say? Enjoy it. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Whatever you do, enjoy it. Listen to the pessimist. See, because the pessimist looks and, and, and says, you know what? I'm a worm, I'm just a worm. That's all I am. And everybody goes, man, you're a downer. You're a pessimist. You're a downer. But isn't that what Solomon is doing is to remind everybody who they are? The pessimist has a job, and that's to remind us that we're all in the same place. We all suffer the same fate. There's nobody here more righteous than the other. I heard somebody say once that humanity is like ruined temples. You know, when you come across a city of ruins, you can kind of make out what it was. Busted pillar here, little stained glass there. That's what we are. Little nobility here, little righteousness there, little kindness there. But we're all in the same place. We all live under the sun. And nobody has anything to boast about. So since we don't, he says, why not enjoy it? Why not take the gift that God has given us and enjoy it? By the way, he's given us something to do. But the most beautiful gift, the most beautiful gift is that he's given us someone to do it with church. That's what we're here for. We're here to listen to the pessimist, to remind us that under the sun is utterly futile. We're here to listen to the optimist who points his way saying, you know what? It could be better than it is now. The church could be better. We could be better we could hold each up but each up better we could love each other more and maybe under the sun won't be so bad for the people that it is really bad for under the sun god made you he created you does he know who you are does he know who we are does he know our natures does he know what we did what we don't do what we don't want to do what we do want to do does he know all those things And yet he says, you are my beloved child. And in you I am well pleased. Rabbi Akiva once said that when God comes to you, he will not ask you why you weren't King David. He will simply ask you, why didn't you enjoy or were Moisheh the Shoemaker? Because that's what I created you to be. I created King David to be King David. I created Moist the Shoemaker to be Moist the Shoemaker. I created you to be who you are. But Lord, I'm just an animal. My nature, I wish there was something I could do about it. Lord says, I know who you are. Feed my sheep. I know who you are. Get with the rest of the people that have that same nature and tell them that I love them. Show them that I love them. That's what we're here for. Let the people know we understand that we're all headed for the same fate. Yet the preacher says today, enjoy. We might as well, right? We might as well. For while we were still weak at the same time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. That's the best under the sun can do. That's the best that under the sun can do. If, 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 if I think you're a good person, I might die for you. That's what he said. Nobody will ever die for a bad person. But sometimes somebody, somebody might die for a really, really good person. Paul's saying, indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The pessimist can constantly remind us of this, that we're ungodly but died for created in the image of God, but corrupted animal-like nature, and still our only hope is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Pessimists will remind us that we are worms. But I'm a worm, David says, not human, scorned by others, despised by the people. What's funny is and, and, and when I think of worms, I think of Isaiah 1.18. You know, we all hear it. We all know that verse. Come, let us reason together. Let's work this out, he says. Though your sins are as scarlet, they may be what? They may be white as snow. That word for scarlet actually literally in Hebrew is worm. You know why? Because there's a worm back in the ancient day that they used to make a red dye out of. They would crush the worm. And it made this indelible red dye. You could not get it out. Anybody ever dyed their fingers with something? When did it come off? Long, 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 long time. Literally what Isaiah is saying is though your sins are like worm, like the worm's dye, the indelible dye that we get from that worm, they will be white as snow. The pessimist can remind us that we are but worms, but created in the image of God and cleansed of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, and you thought us pessimists were just downers. Let me share this with you, church. Peter Brown says in his article, I want to talk to you about the most dangerous thing in the world. It's not bad theology. It's not bad doctrine. It's not the religious right or the wacko left. The most dangerous thing in the world is religion. In Ireland, you can kill a Catholic for Jesus. In the Middle East, you can bomb a church in the name of God. In India, you can worship a cow while a child dies of starvation. In the Sudan, you can create a slave for Allah. And in America, you can kill a baby, blaspheme in the name of freedom, or hate a homosexual, all in the name of Christ. Peter Berger has said that the Swedes are the most atheistic, unreligious people in the world. And in India, we find the most religious of all nations. He said in America, we are a nation ruled by Swedes, but we're a bunch of Indians. The problem is the Swedes bow in the name of God in a mantra to get votes. The prayer of the little boy makes the point, Lord, can you make all the bad people good and could you please make all the good people nice? It's very hard to be right and nice at the same time. That's why I pray that you be wrong a lot. It's very hard to be righteous and real at the same time. That's why I pray you see your sin and whatever righteousness you have, you will be unaware of it. very hard to be successful and godly at the same time. That's why I pray that you fail and fail a lot. And in me, his prayers have been answered. Garrison Keeler tells a man about a man in Lake Wobegon who was a drunk. Everybody liked him. OK, but he was a nice drunk. Then he went to AA when he got sober. They found out he was a jerk. And there's no 12-step programs for jerks. (laughs) It's very hard to be known as a Christian at work or in the pulpit, the classroom, and at a church meeting and be poor in spirit at the same time. That's why I pray that you sometimes make a fool of yourselves a lot. It's more dangerous to be right than to be wrong because the downside of truth is truth's perversion. There's an observable and inverse correlation between true religion and necessary repentance. Be that he is the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall be humble shall be exalted. Matthew 23, 11 and 12. We're all under the sun. The greatest thing he gave us is that we get to do it together. But we've got to be real. We have to be real. We have animal-like natures. We give into them way too much, even in the church. The church needs to be the place, needs to be the place where we can live out the toil under the sun and maybe, just maybe, we'll get a bit of enjoyment out of it. I think this is what the preacher is telling us when he says, love what you do. Love what you do. Love each other in the process. And one day, one day under the sun will then be taken over the sun. And it'll all be made right. Solomon told us today. He will judge everybody. And in the end, if we believe in Christ, we will get to live over the sun in the image of God. And hopefully our animal natures will be nothing but a huge distant memory, never to call the mind again. I love you, family. Tell someone else you love them today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us the words of the preacher. We thank you for pessimists. We thank you for optimists. We thank you for everybody who will point out who we are under the sun and who we are with you over the sun. Help us to take this Sabbath for you to reveal to us truly who we are and truly how you feel about us. Let your love and your grace live in us. We send a family out that is raising a young daughter and we pray for all of our families raising young children that they would know your love and your grace today. It may be more important that we would learn your love and your grace from them because children lead us in the kingdom. We thank you again for your word. I give ask your peace upon everybody. Bring us back together again in your time. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen.